The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Here and now where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south, where the transcendent grace of God touches ground in the humility of Christ, in the spirit, right here, just now, at Marsh Chapel, Boston University, where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country. In this holy place, at this sacred hour, we assemble to worship Almighty God. As an addressable congregation in this nave of Marsh Chapel, a heart for the heart of the city and a service in the service of the city, as a radio congregation through WBUR 90.9 FM across New England, and as those who are absent this week yet may choose to be present next week, those listening WBUR.org around the globe. It is the embrace of love divine that gathers us on this Epiphany Sunday. Today we proudly welcome our frequent guest choir in Coro Novo with thanks for their graces and gifts and for their director, Dr. Therese Provenzano. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God for the singing of our hymn.
Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan proclaimed him your beloved Son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit, grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant that they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God in glory everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Well, beloved, we are invited in this time of silence and during the singing of the Kyrie to offer our individual and collective prayers of confession. In so doing, we remember the words of Reinhold Niebuhr, who said, no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as from our own. Therefore, we are saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. Let us pray. beloved, the same pardoning love which gives us the confidence to confess brings us this day the embrace of pardon. If we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the prophet Isaiah chapter 43 verses 1 through 7. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Responsively, Psalm 29 with the Antiphon. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. 
The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild, wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all say, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Now, beloved, rise up, in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria Deo, the reading of the Gospel, and the singing of our Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17 and 21 through 22. Glory to you, O Lord. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ.
seated. The Prince of Peace, so we have said and sung in celebrating the birth of Jesus, we have named him as the prophets and the evangelists before us have done. In his baptism today, he is so acclaimed as the Son of God. Yet the promises of the scriptures sometimes seem so far removed, so improbable, so impossible. And come winter with Christmas tide and epiphany, we can feel so in worship. We remember the echoes remain. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, Everlasting, Father, Prince of Peace. But now another January has rolled in with its bills, forecasts, 1040s, newscasts, bombings, terrors, and violence. And war is all about us. All the promises of God find their yes in him, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. But the promises of peace seem light years away. There is a beautiful anthem which our choir has sung. Streams in the desert, lifting wonderfully the majestic promises of the scripture. It surely brings tears to the eyes every time it is heard. Yet such a promise seems so far off. So far off. What are we to make of the hope of peace in a world-drenched in war. Is such a hope unrealistically naive? Was was Isaiah naive to sing, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain? Was John the Baptist naive to shout, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit? Was Gandhi naive? to believe that the British Empire could be thwarted by nonviolent protest? Were the great teachers and preachers of Boston University and elsewhere of another generation, Mulder, Chalmers, Tittle, Fosdick, Ward, naive to practice and teach pacifism through their 20th century lives? Most pointedly, and there is no escaping responsibility for response in this chapel, within this nave, upon this plaza, were Thurman and King naive in their reliance on the power of nonviolence in the face of brutal and violent oppression? What shall we say come Sunday about war and peace? Over many decades now, Christian churches have deployed next Sunday as a time to honor King and his voice, his traditions, his style and worship. We too do our part in this way at Marsh Chapel as we shall again next Sunday. But over these decades, it could be said, the American Christian Church has done less well in remembering the content of King's teaching 
the range of his thought, the deep contours of his worldview, the piercing contemporaneity of his mind. Today, let us think with him about war and peace, beginning with some summary history of Christian thought on the matter. We teach our students in preaching that a sermon can be delivered in a reflective mode without a final resolution or without a complete resolution. Such a preachment is meant to lift the heart, lift the gaze, lift the issues, lift up the marrow matters of life in the presence of the divine. Today's sermon is one such delivered in the mode of reflection. Over 20 centuries and speaking with unforgivable concision as one must in a 22-minute sermon, two basic understandings of war and peace have emerged in Christian thought. As you know, these roughly can be called the so-called pacifist and the so-called just war understandings. Pacifism preceded its sibling and infinitely extends to all times the interim ethic of the New Testament, which even in Luke, a later writing, expects that the coming of Christ will soon make moot our ethical dilemmas and so tends to err on the side of quietism or, in the case of arms, pacifism. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Many utterly saintly Christian women and men have have and do honor this understanding with their selfless commitment, including many in this congregation and listening today. My own pulpit hero, Ernest Fremont Tittle, the best Methodist preacher of the 20th century, did so from his Chicago pulpit through the whole Second World War. Last May, it was one of the greatest joys of 2009. I had the privilege of preaching from that pulpit. While personally I have not been able to this date anyway to agree with him, I never compose a sermon on this topic without wondering and to some degree fearing what his judgment might be. The multiple theories of just war, or war as the least of all evil alternatives, have developed since the fourth century in the writing of St. Augustine. Here the command to be merciful as God is merciful is understood tragically to include times when mercy for the lamb means armed opposition to the wolf. The New Testament apocalyptic frame and its interim ethic are honored, to be sure, but supplemented with the historic experience of the church through the ages. Many utterly saintly Christian men and women have honored this understanding with their selfless commitment, including some present and listening today, and some who are not present because they gave their lives that others might live. Just war thought includes several serious caveats. We together can, in a reflective mode, recall these this morning in five forms. Just cause in response to serious evil. Just intention for restoration of peace with justice. No self-enrichment or desire for devastation. Use as an utterly last resort. Legitimate authority and reasonable hope of success given the constraints of discrimination and proportionality usually understood as protection of non-combatants. Response, 
restoration, restraint, last resort, common authority. Response, restoration, restraint, last resort, common authority. Going forward, it is a requirement for Christian living that one be able in a paragraph to rehearse just war theory. Pacifist Christians will need to do so in order justly to be able to criticize this tradition. Those within the just war tradition will need to do so in order justly to distinguish this tradition from adversaries, e.g. preemption and distortions. So repeat in your mind, response, restoration, restraint, last resort, common authority. Pacifism and just war, these two venerable pillars of Christian thought demarcate the limit to date of received Christian teaching from scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. How shall we reflect on the promises of the Prince of Peace, the tradition of promise in the scripture, and our readings for this Sunday? If the lectionary readings from Isaiah and Luke were not enough, if our lived experience up to and including the Christmas Day Detroit bomber were not enough, our sitting president has made avoidance of such reflection impossible for us, and rightly so, in his recent Oslo speech. As Obama did earlier with race, so he has done now with peace. He is forcing us to think higher and feel deeper. Our president is asking and forcing us to think, to think harder, to think differently, to think in new ways. In Oslo, Obama resurrected Reinhold Niebuhr. Our colleague Andrew Basevich at Boston University and our president Barack Obama have done more in our time to resuscitate the tamed cynic than has the whole theological community combined. You remember Niebuhr? the author of the serenity prayer. God give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. But Niebuhr also more typically wrote, nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime, therefore we are saved by hope. Nothing true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history, Therefore, we are saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. No virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as from our own. Therefore, we are saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. He further defined for our time the just war argument for Christians, a kind of Christian realism. In fact, he is usually understood to be the modern father of such realism. Obama took his stand alongside Niebuhr and with respect against King. He said, we must begin by acknowledging the hard truth that we will not eradicate violent conflict in our lifetimes. There will be times when nations, acting individually or in concert, will find the use of force not only necessary, but morally justified, end quote. Then comes the most fascinating of paragraphs in Oslo. 
I make this statement mindful of what Martin Luther King said in this same ceremony years ago, quote, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones, end quote. As someone who stands here as a direct consequence, Obama continued, of Dr. King's life work, I am living testimony to the moral force of nonviolence. I know there is nothing weak, nothing passive, nothing naive in the creed and lives of Gandhi and King. But as a head of state sworn to protect and defend my nation, I cannot be guided by their examples alone. I face the world as it is and cannot stand idle in the face of threats to the American people." End quote. While he placed no footnote, that sentence summarizes Niebuhr's book, Moral Man and Immoral Society, required reading for a theological education, recommended reading for an education. That is, groups and institutions do not have the moral freedom which individuals do. One person may sacrifice himself or herself, but the head of a state group, union party, family, or neighborhood simply is not free to enforce that choice upon those whom he leads or represents. The rest of the speech, which has fairly been called a masterpiece, simply fills in the argument. War is folly, but war is necessary. Force can be justified on humanitarian grounds. Sanction, justice, negotiation, human rights are our tools. Quote, we can understand that there will be war and still strive for peace. The nonviolence practiced by men like Gandhi and King may not have been practical or possible in every circumstance, but the love they preached, their faith in human progress, must always be the North Star that guides us on our journey. For if we lose that faith, we lose what is best about our humanity. We lose our sense of possibility. We lose our moral compass." End quote. It is the splendor of this Oslo statement that it justly revives Niebuhr, makes the case for the second option in Judeo-Christian ethics, not pacifism, but just war practice, and yet holds in some connection the first option, historically and morally, within Christian thought, that of the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Obama wants what we all want, the practical realism of Niebuhr and the dreaming idealism of King. Can one have both? It is a hard circle to square. It is a hard balance to strike. Even Harriet Tubman, perhaps you remember, carried a pistol on her journey to follow the North Star. In the Oslo perspective, the tragic inevitability of war, regrettable but inevitable, has the pole position, the honored position. The dreams are just that, dreams. Twice, Obama tries not to call King naive, and commendably, and graciously so. But did he avoid it? Quote, I know there is nothing naive in the creed and lives of Gandhi and King. End quote. 
Those who have listened for some time here at Marsh Chapel know that my own perspective is in general partly Niburian and in particular quite close in expression and substance to the sketch offered in Oslo. In fact, in our time, there is not a speech or preachment which does better in the popular mode to summarize the realist position as it is given to this point, and yet still to push us out toward the world that ought to be. For most newspaper commentators to the contrary, Obama was doing more than rehearsing Niebuhr. He was not trying only to revivify a long-dead Lutheran pastor and Union Seminary teacher, no bad thing in itself. He was reaching higher. There is a yearning, there is a longing, there is a leaning in the Oslo Address. There is a desire to move us forward from war to peace. What we are is not what we shall be. Of course, the problem is in the first move. Niebuhr pretty clearly argues that, by and large, what we are is what we shall be. Nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime. That is, there is here a serious, lasting conundrum for Christian realists. It is the peril Obama tries to circumnavigate at the end of his speech. Listen again. If we lose faith, if we dismiss it as silly or naive, we lose our sense of possibility. With all due respect, we lose a lot more than that. The Oslo weakness lies here. Obama rightly was trying to move us farther on from Niebuhr and King, Niebuhr versus King. To do so, he would have had to face more frontally, more squarely, the devastation inherent in realism of the kind which Niebuhr and many of us with him have affirmed. War begets war. The primary cause of war is war. It is this hard insight, we might call it deep river realism, which lies at the heart of King's and Gandhi's pacifism. Realism of this sort cuts the nerve of vital energetic rebellion against violence. If we shall not eradicate violence, if that is really the bottom line, then we are forever in a closed circle. The idealism needed heart by heart, year by year, to reject violence is potentially strangled in the cradle, aborted before there is a chance of breath. If nonviolence is doomed from the beginning, the muscle for peace building is severed from the torso of peace making. Christ and culture in paradox suffocates Christ transforming culture. Luther trumps Wesley, Niebuhr trumps King. It makes you wonder where true realism lies. It makes you question the location of naivete. As people of faith, you will in the course of your lifetimes need periodically to choose pacifism or realism both are time-honored, both have biblical roots, both may be inferred from the teachings of Jesus, both are found in the history of the Church, both have had courageous, faithful, humble advocates in our time, 
and in the very space we now inhabit for worship. You may at least recognize that those who affirm pacifism may forget that justice for the lamb sometimes requires resistance to the wolf. You may at least realize that those who affirm realism may sever the nerve of hope which alone can bring the idealism that makes for peace. Here are King's own Nobel Prize speech words. Nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for man to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to oppression and violence. Man must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. Is that naive? That does not sound so naive. It even has a Niberian hue and tinge and coloration. King from the grave encourages us to think and act anew. Our time is new, our circumstances new, so our judgments and actions too must be new. For a peaceful realism, a realistic pacifism to emerge in our time, we shall need both the serene realism of Niebuhr and the prophetic dream of King. But I do not see a reasoned resolution to the paradoxical dual needs, the antinomial dual needs of serene realism and prophetic dream. That is, I do not see a ready synthesis of the two. All I can recommend to conclude is that we live it through. That we live it through even when we cannot fully think it through. We shall need a picture of the world that shows a world that can work. A vision of what the world can look like one generation from now. Built upon a realistic peace. You will not be surprised to hear me name this vision, this Lord's Day, is that of the beloved. Thou art. People of all religions and no religion will need to consider his claim upon their lives, our lives, his claim upon your own life. This is not an advertisement for a particular form and place of worship, nor an argument for a particular form of theology or divinity. It is something far harder and truer than that. It is a call for a decision, a call for you to take the plunge into the icy Jordan and yourself be baptized into his baptism, into the humility of his life embedded in each personal and public debate, into the stern love of his Mount Sermon, raiment for the day's work, into the community of his joy and peace, which his death created, a church, an honest-to-goodness fellowship of friends, as balm for the inevitable hurts and failures of the struggle, into the singing heart of his voice, pure and lovely like streams in the desert, into the touch of his hand, the finger of God, stirring ordinary people to do extraordinary things. 
into the emptiness of his purse, his chosen poverty, guidance for our use of what in any case we only have in passing, into the courage of his passion, a courage to be in every setting and time, into the self-giving of his death, mark and measure of our real humanity, into the promise of his resurrection, the promise of the possibility of real change, real compassion, real peace in real time. So that in hunger banished and poverty chastened and literacy enhanced and security achieved and freedom cherished in violence disdained day by day, out of the murky waters of messy history, there shall at least emerge a kind of human life which conforms to the body of the Prince of Peace. And on that day, earth shall ring, and a voice shall cry out, Thou art my beloved. With thee I am well pleased. Amen. As we are called to prayer through the singing of Lead Me, Lord, we invite you to pray in the ways that you feel will most help support the prayers of this community. Please come and stand or kneel at the altar rail. Stand or raise your hands in your place. Respond in your first language, however you feel the Spirit moving in prayer for you. I will set the intention then I will say, God, in your grace, if you would please respond, hear our prayer. Dearly beloved, let us pray.
you who are one, you who are three, one God in perfect community. We who are made in your image join with you in prayer this day as individuals who bring with us in our very selves the communities of which we are a part. In your spirit of inclusion and invitation, we pray. For ourselves, as individuals, and for our communities, for our particular ministries in the world, for our ministry in and through Marsh Chapel and the Office of Religious Life, for the work of all the Church. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray with and for all our sisters and brothers who confess your name, for our unity in your truth, for our life together in your love, and for our revelation of your glory in the world. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray with and for our cousins and neighbors in faith traditions other than our own, and with and for all people of goodwill, for the works of blessing, courage, and peace in and through us all for the life of the world. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray for the nations and peoples of the world, for the leaders amongst us, for the ways of justice and peace amongst us, for our honoring of one another, and for our service to our common wealth and common good. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray for creation, for earth and air and water, for our companions, animals and plants, for our reverence for our planet's diversity and beauty, for our right use of its resources in service to others and to your honor and glory. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray for all whose lives are closely linked with ours, for our service to Christ in them, and for our love for one another as Christ loves us. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray for all who face particular challenges of body, mind, spirit, for their comfort, healing, courage, and hope, for our standing with them in the common and extraordinary challenges of life, and for the joy of your hope for us all. God, in your grace, Hear our prayer. We pray for those who have died with thanksgiving for their life and work amongst us, for their family and friends, for your will fulfilled in them, and for our sharing with all your saints in the life to come. God, in your grace, hear our prayer. We pray for the joys and celebrations of our human life, those milestones which mark our journey, those things which strengthen our hearts and promote our peace. 
God, in your grace. Hear our prayer. In all these things we pray in trust, as you pray with us in your compassion too deep for words. Let us all say, Amen. Amen. And now, continuing in our prayer together, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Welcome back to all of those who are returning from intercession, faculty, staff, students, if there are any out there. I want to say a special thank you to Incoro Novo. Um, thank you so much for um, blessing us with your presence and your gift of music today. Next week, next Wednesday, is the very first day of classes for the spring semester for Boston University. With the first day of classes comes our regular um, programming and also a huge number of first week activities. I would encourage you to take a look at the Marsh Chapel website in the coming days for a list of all of these activities. The Marsh Chapel website is bu.edu chapel. You can also track us on Facebook or on Twitter to keep up to date with all of the various activities. I would also like to encourage you to take a look at the red pads that can be found towards the center aisle. If you would take the time to fill those out so that we can get to know your names and also so that you can get to know the names of those who are seated next to you. I would also encourage you to pass those red pads back down the aisle so that people can get to know your name. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
Gracious God, we offer back to you these our gifts of money, symbol of our time, resources, life energy, and devotion. Bless and multiply them, we pray, that we who give them and those who receive them may be strengthened and encouraged in the life of faith and in the continuation of your work and of love and justice in the world. Amen. of God that passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God, creator, redeemer, sustainer. Amen.